Matthew 5, in verse 33, it talks about oaths. In verse 38, it talks about eye for an eye and so forth, paying people back. And then in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, over the last couple of Sundays, we've been opening the scriptures to this famous sermon on the part of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, I'm hoping that you are starting to notice that while the Pharisees, to whom much of the sermon is directed, while the Pharisees called for people to be good, that is, to do what is righteous, to follow God's law and be obedient to God's commands, Jesus calls us to an even greater or fuller obedience or righteousness. While the Pharisees, interpreting the Old Testament Ten Commandments, called people to do, Jesus calls people to be. There's a huge difference there. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, is the teaching of Scripture. And you see, Christianity is a faith that calls on us to understand that we belong and that we have an identity. And that belonging and that identity is rooted in Jesus and the fullness of life that he brings. We're children of the Heavenly Father through Jesus. And as children, we are increasingly being formed and shaped and transformed to reflect the Father. And the Lord does that through the working of the Holy Spirit. The sorts of behavior the Ten Commandments bring forth and the sorts of behavior spoken about in the Sermon on the Mount are not given as a checklist of right and wrong behaviors, as Pastor John said last Sunday. But instead, they are giving, given as an invitation to enter into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. They're given as an invitation to sink deeper and deeper into a life where we truly flourish and when we experience shalom. So many people view Christianity as a religion in which we do this or don't do that. But as we were reminded again, once again, through the sacrament of baptism, we are named as children of the Lord by grace. And as children, we are not called just to do, not just to make sure that we behave and follow all the rules, but we're called upon to be children. And as such, be 
the righteousness and justice of God on the earth. We're called upon to be the light of the kingdom of heaven in a world of darkness. We're called upon to be ministers of reconciliation between God and his creation. We're called to be what God is transforming us as his children to be, namely citizens of the kingdom of God, even as we live in the kingdoms of this world. Hence, the Christian faith is not about being able to check off a list of good behavior, did it, did that, did, did not do that, and then we either do or do not receive our reward, but it's about forming and shaping the heart. So with this in mind, we open to Matthew 5, and we hear Jesus mention yet another characteristic, as it were, of a flourishing kingdom. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the love your neighbor part was a quote from the Old Testament, a quote that many a Jew listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have recognized immediately. They were familiar with the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Got that. Uh, the hate your enemy line, however, is not in the Old Testament, but it probably became part of people's approach as the natural opposite of loving your neighbor. Love your neighbor? I get that. Love those who love me? I get that. That makes a whole lot of sense. And that means that I hate my enemy. That's natural. But really what the Pharisees, that law-abiding group of Jewish religious leaders did, was to make the law way too limited and way too small, something that we tend to do as well. They made it a list to check off, and if all the slots were checked, then they were saved or heaven-bound. And so loving those who were known and around them and loving them was easy, but beyond that, things were much more difficult. If one keeps the law narrowly focused, then we can give the appearance that we're pretty good and we are keeping the law. But Jesus says, in order to flourish, in order to reflect God, I tell you, love your enemies in addition to your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. In other words, becoming more and more shaped in the image of God means that our approach to the world, our enemies even, is going to be different because God's approach to the world was different. It was an approach of redemption, one of righteousness, one of renewal, one of flourishing, of wholesomeness, of complete fulfillment. There's a priceless story in 2 Kings chapter 6 that speaks to all of this. If you have a chance today, read 2 Kings chapter 6. You get a kick out of it. It's a beautiful story. It was a time when the king of Aram sought to fight Israel during a time when Elisha was the prophet of God. And every time the king of Aram came up with a plan to attack Israel, the Lord would tell the plan to Elisha, who in turn told the king of Israel, who in turn would foil the ambush. And once the king of Aram discovered that it was Elisha who was tattling, he went after Elisha with his army. 
and he went to Dothan, and he surrounded the city. And then we read this in 2 Kings 6. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike the army with blindness. So God struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And then Elisha speaks to the army and he says, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me and I'll lead you to the man that you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. So they entered the city. Elisha then said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. That wasn't exactly where they wanted to be. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? I mean, this is a perfect opportunity, right? They're right in my city, right in my gates. I can kill them. Take care of our enemies right here. Do not kill them, Elisha answered. Would you kill those who have cap- you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. And so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. I love that story. It's so contrary to how we live and to how we function. Feed them? Give me a break. Kill them. On October 2nd, 2006, Charles Carl Roberts entered a one-room schoolhouse in the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. He was armed with an automatic shotgun and a handgun. He ordered the boys out of the room, as well as pregnant, a pregnant woman and three women with small children. He lined up 11 young girls, age 6 through 11, along the blackboard. I mean, think of that, the ones who were up here this morning, right, and others. Tied their hands and feet, barricaded the doors with large pieces of wood, and then he began the executions at point-blank range. Once the shootings were complete, he turned a gun on himself. Five of the girls died, with at least three of them having been shot in the head. What a horrific story. Sally Cohn, in an article entitled, What the Amish are Teaching America, writes, The gruesome depths of this crime are hard for any community to grasp, but certainly for the Amish who lived such a secluded and peaceful life, removed even from the everyday depictions of violence on TV. When the Amish were suddenly pierced by violence, how did they respond? She continues, the evening of the shooting, Amish neighbors from the Nickel Mines community gathered to process their grief with each other and mental health counselors. As of that evening, three little girls were dead. Eight were hospitalized in critical condition. According to reports by counselors who attended the grief session, the Amish family members grappled with a number of questions. Do we send our kids to school tomorrow? What if they want to sleep in our beds tonight? Is that okay? But one question they asked might surprise us as outsiders. What they wondered, what they wondered can we do to help the family of the shooter. 
and plans were already underway for a horse and buggy caravan to visit Charles Carl Roberts' family with offers of food and condolences. Cohen then, then added an editorial comment. She said, the Amish, it seems, don't automatically translate their grieving into revenge. Rather, they believe in redemption. Many stood amazed at the response of the Amish to the events that rocked their community. Their response received almost as much press as the actual killings themselves. Because not only did they form a horse and buggy caravan to visit the Roberts' home, but on October 7, five days after having killed five of their little daughters, dozens of Amish attended the funeral of the executioner. And Roberts was buried from a Methodist church just a short way away from the place where he carried out his executions. One of the Amish grandfathers using the event as a teaching tool for the younger generation was quoted as telling two of his grandsons, we must not think evil of the man. I'm not sure that I would be there with them. I'm not sure that I would react in that way. But imagine the whole world. Imagine every nation, every gang, every person lived this way. It's no wonder that John Lennon sang the song, Imagine. Walter Wink in his booklet, When Powers Fall, tells the following story. In 1991, Michael and Julie Weiser moved into their new house in Lincoln, Nebraska, and immediately became the target of a state grand dragon of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, a man by the name of Larry Trapp. You can look this up on Google, it's news. Trapp led a cadre of skinheads and Klansmen responsible for terrorizing black, Asian, and Jewish families in Nebraska and nearby Iowa. Despite his being confined to a wheelchair and suffering from diabetes, Larry carried on with his threats and challenges for some time, and he would leave these horrendous phone messages on Michael and Julie's phone. Michael Weiser, who was a Jewish rabbi, couldn't stand the challenges. And so he would call Larry and leave messages on his phone challenging his positions and telling Larry that he, in the wheelchair, was probably one of the first ones that Adolf Hitler would kill as being useless to society. And discovering that Larry was disabled, and despite the fact that Larry was the enemy, Michael at a certain point asked if there was something that they, as a family, could do to help Larry even just take him to the store for groceries or whatever. And then you read how that worked through Larry's heart and through his mind. It eventually broke him. He accepted help. And then of all things, get this, when he discovered, it was, when it was discovered that he had but months to live, the Wisers provided him with hospice care right in their own home. It's an amazing story. And I'm sure as I'm telling these stories, you can come up with all kinds of stories that you've heard about that speak of love which is redemptive. Remember what Cohen said about the Amish? The Amish, it seems, don't automatically translate their grieving into revenge. Rather, they believe in redemption. 
Martin Luther King Jr., who the United States celebrates in, in big ways, talked about this um, in one of his sermons. He said, there's a final reason, he had a whole sermon about loving your enemies. He said, there's a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. And it is this. That love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem or to transfer, transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving and keep loving them even though they're mistreating you. Here's the person who is a neighbor and this person is doing something wrong to you and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them. You can just hear Martin Luther King preaching this. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you with a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them, and by the power of your love, you will break down under the, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It's redemptive, and that's why Jesus says, love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. And of course, that was Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, having been falsely condemned and persecuted. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies in addition to your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. This is the way to flourish. This is the way to flourish in the kingdom of heaven, but let's face it, that's so counter to how we often respond, right? Someone cuts us off on the road and we say a few things or raise our hand with a prominent finger. When someone steals from us or hurts in some way, how often don't we hear people declare that they will do all sorts of awful things to the perpetrator if only they get their hands on him or her. I'll string them up, I'll wring their neck, I'll make them pay. Sound familiar? We say those kinds of things about people who take advantage of us or who mistreat or abuse us in some way. When bullies get the best of us, we want literally to belt them or to beat them up. So often in our world it comes down to this. You do this to me, guess what? I do that to you. There are so many examples throughout history of people seeking to get even or people exacting revenge out of anger and hate. As long as I can remember, there has been war between various factions in countries such as Israel and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Egypt and among the Palestinians. How often haven't we heard about the death on one side and then a retaliatory counterattack? Just recently, the United States and Iran have been at it. 
And then locally in our province, gangs and our city gangs have been added as well, tit for tat. One even begins to expect it. You hear of some kind of attack and you think, okay, so long and here we come. There's the counterattack. In Northern Ireland, there's been a long-standing feud between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. And one author writing about life in Northern Ireland quoted the following prayer. May those that love us, love us. Those that don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so we'll know them by their limping. Lord, don't listen to that prayer. The upshot of the prayer, of course, that if we know our enemies, we can also destroy them. Revenge and vengeance are tied up in all of this. Vengeance is on the mind of many people. Our natural tendency is to strike back at those who strike at us or to hurt those who hurt us. But Jesus said, that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not my way. Paul wrote, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, invite him into the city. Feed him. If he's thirsty, invite him into the city. Give him something to drink. In doing this, you're going to be heap burning coals on his head. And I never understood that, but I do in the context of 2 Kings 6. Oh, they're embarrassed. And they'll never attack again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of the kingdom of heaven, the way of peace, of hope, of life, of redemption, of flourishing. But this is tough to hear about, isn't it? Love those who abuse me or destroy me. Or this world? Really? And the word love used here is not a word that speaks about brotherly or sisterly love or distant or casual friendship. No, it's the word agape. Self-giving love. The very same love God had for us in Christ when he sought us out and called us brother and sister, son and daughter through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, God's love of those who destroyed this creation through the fall into sin did not lead to revenge and getting even, but it led to redemption. And of course, there's always, always a balance that must be struck between love and justice. We can love our enemy, but they may still have to pay the consequence for their sin against us by paying the fine or spending time in jail or whatever. In some other sermon, we'll have to deal with the balance. But for this morning, we hear Jesus say, love your enemies. And by loving your enemies, you exhibit a characteristic of the kingdom. You show that you are a child of God. Children of God give themselves for their fellow human beings. Enemies and all alike. Because we see them as image bearers of the Lord. And it's like the Father did for us. The Father gave us his Son for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. And he called us son, daughter, you are mine. 
And then he confirmed that in the sacrament of baptism. In Christ, we have a high calling, an incredible high calling, and we're constantly being transformed into the image of Christ. But it's a calling that allows us to flourish and to live life to the fullest. Amen. Oh, Lord, your word is tough. It is so tough. But thank you for teaching us what it is to flourish in a kingdom that you have made. And forgive us, Lord, for the times when we just kind of check off all the marks, done this, haven't done that, so I'm good. And instead, help us to see the higher level to which Jesus calls us. And the Holy Spirit, work in us then to make us new. After your image, to you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.